0: Welcome to this special episode of the More Bikes Podcast. Today we would like to present you an exclusive interview with the most successful sidecar racer of all time, Steve Webster. Steve Webster was born in North Yorkshire and his career began aged 19 back in 1980 at his local circuit, Elvington, near York. He went on to achieve a massively successful career, winning the FIM Sidecar Championship a record-breaking 10 times. His illustrious 25-year career came to an end when he retired in 2005. His professional life had seen him rise from a 19-year-old club competitor to the most successful sidecar racer in the history of the FIM World Championship. Webster has also gained numerous awards and recognition for his outstanding career. He was the recipient of the Seagrave Trophy in 1991 and in the same year he was awarded an MBE for services to sport. The following was an exclusive interview which took place at the Carol Nash Motorcycle Mechanics Show at the Stafford County Showground. Resident compare and racing star Steve Plater conducted the interview.
1: Sorry, sorry, sorry about being late. Hey, no,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, mate. Now, obviously, we know the main stuff that you massively achieve your goals. You know, ten times world sidecar champion, but. You know, as a youngster before it all started, you know, uh, I read. Obviously, your father was a was a great uh, champion grass track sidecar racer. Is that what kind of got you into the obviously to the, the, the racing mind as a youngster, being dragged off every weekend?
1: Yeah, I think when you you know when you when you are in, you're a young lad and you're, you're bundled into a, a sidecar paddock, a grass track paddock for that's what I can remember growing up in. Really, you know, so. I had our own little bike uh, when I was, I think about eight, nine years old. We had a little sidecar that my dad had built us. And yeah, it was inevitable that sooner or later, you were, you know, I was, I was gonna have a go on one and it was just what type really, yeah. You know, for me,
2: you know, as a youngster, um, every weekend, uh, there was a grass track. I live in Lincolnshire and quite locally, it was a, it was a massive thing. I would live there. But, but, ha, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, it was nationwide as well and it was kind of a passion mine, and, a, and, a, and a, it was a great sport and really really popular I'm quite surprised you
1: never went that route once you got going do you know I think when watching my dad obviously uh, watching the, uh, the grass track racing I knew a lot now and going back to the, some of the names it's amazing when, you, when you're younger what you did actually take in you know the, the names and who was doing what and everybody well, I think by the time I got to the stage where I was old enough to have a go on it, uh, on a sidecar, do some sort of racing, then I'd been to watch a few road race meetings and it was just something I thought, do you know, I don't mind having a go at that because watching the grass track, obviously you'd see people flying about all over the place and getting flung off and things and it looked it just looked a bit muddy really. <laughs>
2: So you started quite young, you know, club level, of course, uh, in a sidecar. Was there never any kind of um, intention for two wheels at all? Was it always the
1: three? Uh, I think once we once we dad had gone on one and and, and, and and started doing it, we just wanted to carry on with the with the, with the sidecars because it was something I could do with my brother. Um, it was something that my dad could be also involved in. It was this is that team thing I think that I sort of enjoyed. Um, and I was never he, very he good had, at Your Dad
2: retired
1: at this point from Oh yeah, my father had retired from um, from his uh, sidecar grass track racing. He did. He had a couple of uh, years on the road in the early seventies, I think it was. But he never really, never really went to anything because obviously lack of money. And he was looking after us, me and my little brother.
2: Yeah, you, know, you mentioned, that, you know, of course, your brother. I read, you know, he he started off with you in passengering, you know, and uh, but kind of succumbed to an injury and then decided to.
1: Uh, go a different route. Yeah, it's, it, it was a shame really what happened, was um, we had, we had a, an accident at, at Carnaby, our local circuit, and Kevin, he, he came out of the back of the bike and uh, damaged his leg quite badly, and because of that he couldn't race for, you know, for a year really, so it, was, it took him out for a year, and by then I'd progressed with Tony Hewitt uh, to a stage where we'd just started then to get some, um, some sponsorship, and uh, joining the Fowler's uh, Fowler Yamaha team, and so it it was we couldn't really turn around and go backwards. So it, yeah, and then Kevin went off and, and ended up riding his own bike in the end. So we could still help him with the with his outfit. Yeah.
2: You know, I, I, on the sidecar, you know, I've had a go in a sidecar. I've driven, I've driven only an old thousand in, uh, and someone else kind of it was, it was six or uh, and, and had a go as a passenger, but. It seems to me from the outside to be
1: far more dangerous as a passenger than a driver. I think usually what happens is if you get a good team together, get a good driver and a good passenger, obviously you, you, you progress, you, 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 both of you progress at the same sort of speed and at the same time and you, you you almost know what you the other one's going to be doing, you know, like a good passenger will know that he's been with his rider for, for, for that many years that yep, he's going to go for that gap and he knows that before he does it and uh, and it's the same with a with, with a good driver i used to know when i had like tony hewitt with me he he would actually lean on rolf beelan to stop him getting through you going into a corner at 100 mile an hour and, it, and he tony would just make himself that just a little bit more wider and i used to think yeah that's commitment for you yeah that's commitment all right tony Hewitt was he was he Doncaster? Lad? tony was from the uh, thought willoughby who's in from, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah somebody, yeah, yeah. Was, somebody, somebody so,
2: was asking uh, just a little bit earlier and i thought it was oncaster from somewhere i read last night you know and then um, you two do you do any riding now you're obviously
1: retired now and, and doing your own thing but do you still get out at all i used to go do quite a bit of um, like road riding uh, i had a g6 r1000 uh, and, and a bmw and I used to jump on the bmw and maybe go up to scotland and around the islands and stuff and that, that was smashing the uh, k75 bike i don't know if i wanted to have a bit of a scoop about i'd get on a gsxr but i just found that really uh, i became a granddad. I, I grandkids were coming around and uh, suddenly you didn't sundays weren't weren't sundays anymore yeah so you like doing the family things and stuff like that and um, but i enjoy going doing uh, parades uh, meetings with the with the outfits still i'm oh, still have, heavily involved with like preparing outfits i've got one of my um, one of my old outfits that we won the first world championship on is the chassis in Switzerland, and that's now getting some new parts made for it. And that's then coming back over here, and uh, I've got the engine and the other parts. So I'll build that up, and then I will then go on and, and parade that. So that will that will give me something to do and keep me keep me occupied. So you went you went off obviously uh, as a youngster,
2: and uh, your first your first sort of club race, and and uh, obviously. Uh, talk to it straight away and flip it you know love what you're doing was it always the intention to go to to GPs was that just a passion or did it kind of fall on you and fall into your lap should we say
1: I think I look back and at th- those times when we when, when we got to the stage where we could maybe I'd get a start at a, a world championship or start at a grand prix you had to have been there was a grading list and you had to be on grading list one two or three and that was like Oh, right. You either uh, you either been doing world championships the year before, or you were a British championship, or you have done the European championship. Yeah. So for us as young, young, a young team, let's say, to try and get a start at a Grand Prix, uh, we did a deal with the ACU that if uh, if we did the Isle of Man TT, we got a start at Silverstone. And that was why, that's that's why I went to the TT, and I loved the TT. I really, I really enjoyed it, and I, I, but I didn't get very far, because I crashed. <laughs> so it was at the 13th milestone, and I spent the night in hospital, and, and rode the bike off.
2: And I, I read you, 1983, you crashed on the first lap, uh, on the 13th mile. Was that the first
1: practice lap, or race lap? No, I, I actually got around. As <laughs> <This> in <is> practice, <laughs> I got around the ah, <laughs> beautiful way. I look back and I d- I basically I didn't know where I was going, I think. Because you don't, know, do you? Know, and,
2: uh, let me, ta- while, let me it, tell but... you, I still hate the 13th milestone. But, you know, oh, so yeah. I only raced there three years. But, uh, it was that makes those... me feel a lot better. Than me, it was a dodgy places God, was it? Yeah. Like, no, in all fairness, it was one of those places where you can only use the right-hand side of the road. So if you go over the white line, it's a negative camber. But it's one of those places where you always think, do you know what? You can go loads faster through there. But as soon as you go two miles an hour quicker, you're in a whole world of
1: hell. No, well, I should have maybe I should have spoken to a few more experts before I went. I think maybe that was that was. And plus, we took a bike with us. It was the ex-Jock uh, Taylor bike that uh, bless him, Jock got killed on, and that got repaired. I then joined the Fowler's racing team, and we were um, yeah, we were sort of like pushed a little bit to use that bike, and really, it wasn't the right bike for the for the Isle of Man anyway. And I remember Mick uh, Body saying to me on the boat on the way there, he said, he said. The best thing you can do when you get there to Douglas yeah. is drive your van off, turn it around and F off, all oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so because with that bike, he says around there, you're not going to do anything, and, and yeah, I should have listened to him, shouldn't I, oh,
2: Yeah, I mean, even now the motor world, of course, the the chassis now are so different for the TT as to, uh, for the short circuits, you know, even with the same engines, it's completely different. You know, i talk talked to the Virgil's a lot about what they use of course for the TT and it's so, so different to what they're using for, for
1: any of the short circuits. Yeah. yeah, I think that when when you look at maybe some of the lads in the uh, who were doing the Grand Prix in, in, in the 80s and they used to maybe go at Salzburg, and they'd be doing the practice and everything, and then they used to jump on a uh, jump either on a plane or, in, and then the following week they'd be doing to the Aliment, do the qualifying, and then maybe nip back and do a, a Grand Prix race, and they were jumping off, you know, or one bike onto another, and I always used to think that's, you know, it, it, it's amazing how they can just seem to be able to do both. and uh, Yeah, but I, like I say, the Aliment, I loved it, and there's no ex. Nothing in all the World Championship races I had has the same experience as going through Kirk Michael flat out or whatever, you know, as fast as I could go. And I remember in the, the practice week I just thought it, it's great. And then probably if I hadn't have had that accident and maybe taken another bike, who knows, I might have gone on to, to do maybe more TT racing. So we, we we decided that we would either concentrate on the World Championship or or the and it was just we just went for that direction and the world championship and just pushed all our efforts into making sure we could uh, get there and, and do that, really.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the, that was really my next question. So there's no intention of when, you know, when you finish the GP's you wanted to go back or is just, a, you know? Um,
1: not really, I went back for the, I think we went back for the centenary meeting, and somebody had somebody had found one of Jock's old bikes and it was a, a German guy called Rolf Bonner started it. And he said, you, will, will you ride the bikes team at the, at the TT? Uh, Paul, yeah, in the parade. And, and, and Paul Phillips, the guy from the Alman, had organized it all and everything. So, yeah, yeah, oh, that'd be good. So, I mean, I'd been round for, well, I don't know how many years, but I'd never been round since we crashed. So it gets, a, and it's a TZ 750 Yamaha outfit. So it's got quite a bit of power. And we set off. Uh, I think it was uh, Jeffrey's called flying passes on a solo. Yeah. Oh, all right, going to try and keep up with him. So and I remember slowing right down. At, I forget the place, but where the before the right hander is, where the uh, where the traffic lights are, and I, I, and I, I was turning off up a, a grass a no, grass lane, and I thought, oh, down a few more gears, <laughs> got all the way to the waterworks, and going up there, and then I felt this tapping on the on the bike, and I looked around and. The passenger Paul Woodhead, he's got his leg out and he's pointed at it like this and we both had to stop and get off the bike because we both had a cramp. and this marshal come running up and he says, you alright? Yeah. we just, and we were back because the slower you go, you hit every bump don't you, but the faster you go obviously, you're in maybe, I don't know, one in four bumps, but so we were in every bump and we were just, I was absolutely shattered and we we couldn't even do a lap. (laughs) So we thought, all right, no way we're going back there. Do you
2: know know what? Yeah, I I went for a lap around a TT with Ben Burchill and you can't, I couldn't say, you can't, I can't believe how many more bumps and jumps there are with a sidecar compared to a solo. Because you've got 35 minute travel, that's all they have on the the modern sidecars, you know. Um, And even coming out of case down to the Craig, you know, on a flipping solo, it's three wheelies, brake hard and turn right. No. Yeah, on a sidecar, I was waving to the crowd and hanging out the back like a superman because there's just no travel. Honestly, yeah.
1: honestly, I'm not honest. It shocked me You're going to hit a lot more bumps because yeah. you've got a lot more rubber on the road. Plus, yeah. you've got three wheels, yeah. haven't you? And, uh, yeah, and, and so little travel. Yeah, and we don't put any suspension on the sidecar for the passengers. We get the skips <laughs> <rough time>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's rough time. Well,
2: obviously, we... from passenger, and I know how easy it is for a driver. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So you know, going back to the, the, the GP job, you know, you quickly kind of went from club racing to, you know, national racing, and then um, um, pretty quickly
1: um, got through to the GP side. Yeah, going back to the the deal for the Isle of Man, really, and then that that was we went then after the Isle of Man, we sort of like straightened ourselves up a little bit and got our old conventional bike back, and then went to our first Grand Prix at Silverstone, and luckily we finished fourth. Um, some of the other competitors broke down and we just we managed to get these points.
2: How long after starting this? How many years into your career? It was, was it, uh, was it a, wild card, a one-off?
1: Yeah like yeah. a one-off to start with because you, we, we just couldn't get on any grading list or anything so then we got a wild card uh, for the Silverson Grand Prix and we finished fourth and we got some points yep. and then the following week was the Swedish Grand Prix at uh, Anderstol so we jumped in our band, our old ambulance that we had at the time and drove to, Swiss, uh, drove to Sweden, and then camped outside the paddock, and we broke in in the end to get in. And once you're in the paddock, and you had a few uh, World Championship points, we just then waited to get on the, as a reserve, and then to get on the grid, and, and that's how you had to how you had to do it, because you didn't have any passage or anything to get in, so we were like camping outside, like, like <laughs> you know it's a, it's a great kind of
2: uh, a lot of camaraderie with a, with a sidecar guy it still is now uh, and obviously there was back then you know um, did, did those guys help out to, to, to get you in
1: yeah i think when you used to a lot of the lads that, uh, they, they knew who, who were the good riders let's say oh had a good good um, who was capable of doing well and quite often you'd, you used to get your seeded riders that always get the starts at the grand prix but then you'd If you're in Sweden, say someone like Billy Galros would turn up, who was their local, uh, a a good rider, who maybe didn't have at that time the uh, the points for qualifying everything, but as long as you could do half decent lap time, they would give you a start as a reserve. So it was basically getting yourself there and just keep going and knocking on the door of the office and saying, you know, anybody uh, anybody broke down yet, or anybody you know just waiting uh, waiting the weekend sort of thing, and you know.
2: Back in this time, how, how, how tight was it budget-wise? You know, were you sleeping in tents?
1: and Oh, we didn't have tents. All them lucky guys had, had tents. <laughs> 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 I joke, I kid you not, people had slept under the, under the, um, under the transporter. Uh, make sure you don't set off on the morning before you go yeah. but, but no, it was... Um, all the lads were, you know, the, most of the finance and the money, in the early days when you first start, Comes from your work. You do you do it as a job, or you, and, and you save up. And you, uh, I was very lucky that quite early on I got to, I got to know Paul Seward, who was one of my sponsors who stayed with me nearly all, all my career. And I had a, I was very lucky that I had a, a good group of people around me in my racing team, both in the, uh, the finance side, the preparation side, and the engine and everything. And, and, and we did have a real tight knit, good, good, good set. Yeah.
2: You know, you've, you've got a kind of an engineering background yourself, um, did you make a lot of, you know, obviously, I'm up here chatting with Alan Milliard, who's yeah. a flipping, uh, fabulous man and, uh, well, bloody abnormal, uh, but, but fantastic. You know, uh, did you fabricate a lot of your own things and
1: yeah, know, it was, engineer we, a lot of your own parts? We actually, uh, I think it was about 1985, 86, we, we wanted a Honda, Honda, an Honda engine using Honda cylinders, which was a uh, 54, 54 bore and stroke, compared with the Yamaha, which was a 50.6 and a 56 bore and stroke. The cut, long story short, what we did was we got a Yamaha bottom end with magnesium case, and then we then machined it and made a new top crankcase for it that would add reed valves in it, and then and then made it got a crankshaft made, and did all that basically from yeah from our workshop in Flawith and and then went on to use that but um, luckily by, by the start of the season it was then when Krauser was making the, the engines which were more, more for sidecars, a bit heavier, a bit stronger um, and then we were lucky to get a, a contract with Krauser to supply the engine cases and then, then we used to make the engines then ourselves, build them up. Yeah.
2: And in that era it was pretty much, was everybody on Krauser? whether it be new or old? Um, quite a lot of the
1: lads uh, oh, foreign. was foreign choice? Yeah, you had, you had either a company called JPX which were making basically copies of the TZ500 engine because yeah. what it was was everybody who was using TZ500s were a magnesium alloy crankcase and they were built for solos really. And you stick them in a sidecar and rev them up and, and, and the uh, cases were splitting, um, gearboxes were snapping off the back you name it, it happened to and we were slowly, the sidecar class was slowly getting through all these uh, these engines so something had to be done and uh, that's why Krauser came along building the engine and what that did was it allowed us to to keep using the latest 250 Yamaha and Honda cylinders so we could then still put them on the sidecar by adapting them and, and machining um, top, uh, top plates to allow us to fix these cylinders on but then you could just buy say uh 94 cylinders for a honda and you would know that you could be able to get them on because you had a reed valve induction in the engine so it was it was quite good of michael krauser who was the, the pannier guy with all the panniers in germany he, he also made uh, bikes for stefan dorfling and people like that in the early days of the grand prix then yeah he, he sort of in a way saved the the engines for the sidecar class yeah and
2: maintenance wise you know back in the old two-stroke days you know, in my early career I used to look at the 125 and the 250 solo riders and the, bloody, uh, the heads and the cylinders are off every session, was it the same in the sidecar game? It was, yeah, we used to, um,
1: I had some, again, uh, Naj Bosworth, a few of the like, riders that maybe used to get a bit of uh, help from the solos and, hey Memo, come and have a look at this, you know. Uh, but what what I used to do is I used to go and get maybe um, 40 cylinders from a, a bloke called Hans Hummel in Austria, he used to cast his own cylinders an Egg destroyer used to use them, uh, a lot of the um, solo lads used to use them as well. And I'd bring them back home, get 40 of them, and then I'd measure each one on a, on, a, on, a, on a single cylinder engine with a dial gauge on it, and measure all the ports and everything, and then I'd match them all up, and then I would then get the con rods, the pistons, and do everything, and make everything, so it was like blueprinting. so the engine was as best as it could be. And then we'd have two or three sets of those cylinders in reserve and then the rest would go off to be, you know, sold as just for people to use. And that was during the winter, so at the start of the year, we would have everything, like dry-built, would have been built, and then stripped down again, ready. So as if you went to a Grand Prix, you had cranked, a set of crank shafts, you knew the um, length of the conrod, they'd give you the right squish clearance. So it, yeah, you could just do it very quickly. So as it, normally on a, a Friday night, which was always a crank night at the Grand Prix, you'd finish your last, test session, maybe by six o'clock, five, six o'clock, engine cools down and then that, boom, crankshaft's shafts out of it, cylinders off it. You'd put new cranks in, new pistons, new rings. And if that had been dry built, previous back in the workshop, you didn't have to check everything. You didn't have to check all your clearances or everything because you knew, then you just bang, 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 bang. And then by one o'clock, two o'clock morning, you're in bed, happy days. Rest of the lads would be up till four, five in the morning. And was that, you know, obviously your father was was
2: a mechanic for you, for you know, throughout your career. Yeah. Um, was that his
1: job, or was that purely hands-on from you? Uh, dad was like, um, hands-on with us. We, my Dad was uh, aircraft technician. That was his. That was his actual profession. So when it came to the chassis, been that's all like aircraft. It's it, 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 aircraft riveted it's materials, like uh, the chassis built. Uh, with sheet aluminium that's like aircraft wings and stuff. So it was all, he was in his element with the chassis and stuff. And, yeah, so again, it all everything fitted into this little family affair sort of thing, yeah. So from your first uh, wild card at Donington,
2: you know, that was what, fourth place? At Silverstone, yeah. Uh, sorry, at Silverstone. Um, you know, were, were you pretty sort of confident then of what you could do in that arena? Or did that come as a bit of a shock? It was a bit
1: of a shock so I remember, uh, I think it was. Uh, ring in Austria and I can remember going out in a practice session and, and Rolf Bieland and Kurt Waltersberg had set off before us and thought like, right I've just got to try and chase him keep up with him, learn him and, and, and I, I couldn't keep up with him and I remember coming back thinking how the hell am I going to do this and it took me maybe well best part of a, of a year to even be able to Chasing for half a lap or a lap to be able to learn from him and what what I could and that's how it was. We were slowly dragged along. It, it, was that machinery or you and your teammate? I think it was just me and my teammate and just realising that it, it wasn't until I could follow somebody like Rolf and Kerr yeah. that you realise what you can do with a sidecar because obviously that at that time they were the best uh, you know the best there was and. You need to follow somebody like that to be able to learn from them because otherwise you never really realise how far you can push the thing. And, and doing that, uh, and then I got to the stage where I, eventually I could keep up with him, albeit maybe for a lap. But I used to be consistently doing that, and then it, then it was two laps, then it was three laps. And then I found that, wait a minute, I could maybe I'd have a nibble at you here. And then that was when, that was maybe the turning point, was when I used to start passing him. And that, it, was, it was quite funny because Rolf used to always have this habit, he used to go into a left hander. And if you kept pushing him and pushing and pushing, you used to see his lap coming out, and his lapboard would always be like plus one, plus one, plus one, and it'd be Webber, plus one, plus one. Really? And what he used to do is he used to come around the left hander like onto uh, Donington start finish strip, and I'd see him give a little flitch like that, and he used to look round like that. So what I used to do is as soon as I saw Twitch, I looked So he turned around to see me looking backwards, and he must have thought. Oh what are you doing? <laughs> and that was how you so slowly sort of meant to try and break somebody down a little bit, yeah. So I had a good, uh, I had some good, good tussles with for Yeah. When uh, obviously,
2: what your you, your first obviously uh, wildcard Grand Prix uh, was was a great result, and you very quickly, I think, you know, landed your first world title. You know, was that. Did that become easy to land that in the first year, or was it was it hard graft? I think
1: it's, it, it's it's very hard because you, in a way, what you're doing is you're always you're striving to try and get better and faster and better. And in that, you've got in a way, you're in this little lonely little furrow of, of sidecar racing, and all the world's going on around everything else. But you're so concentrated on what you want to do, like suddenly you pop your head up and like, i am oh, a dad as well?" sort of thing, <laughs> And it's surprising what, um, in a way, how how selfish maybe you have to be to achieve a goal that you want to do. And, um, uh, and it, you know, it was later on uh, you sort of think, yeah, yeah, I miss, I'll miss, you do miss out a lot in life, but you also achieve a lot by achieving what you've done. But the way we did it and the, the amount of effort we put in to that first world championship, yeah, it was it, it was a good year. It's tough, you know, like you said earlier, you've
2: got to have a, a good, not just a good team, but a great family around you. Because I think, of course, any sport is uh, uh, selfish. Yeah. So, was 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 the wife a keen fan and a, a strong
1: part of, you know, or backbone of the team? She, the wife, bless her, uh, she came to Cadwell Park in about 1983 once, something. we were going to early meetings, and we were camping again with a tent and it snowed and she said says, she, says she never came to another meeting after that, <laughs> bless her, but she was quite happy to, to stay home and she helped a lot at home with the help with the organisation stuff and that, she was quite like really good, she didn't come to, she came to maybe one or two Grand prizes after that when the, when, when the children were born, but yeah she was, she was quite happy to stay at home and she knew that I was going off doing something which was became a job, let's say, as well as being a hobby, it then became a job. I gave up my work at Round Trees and I thought, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it properly and try and make a living from it. And that's what, that's what we did. And she, was, uh, she was quite happy to stay home, I say, with the kids, and, and I went off schooling around on one of these things. You know,
2: uh, mid 80s to, to into the 90s, how, how difficult was that to find the budget to, you know, to, to obviously finance a uh, World Championship? With a team of people,
1: not just yourself. Yeah. Or I think what what used to happen was you became, you, basically, you were unemployed. At, you know, when when last race of the meeting, you you were unemployed because maybe your sponsorship had finished for that year. Yeah. So come sort of what was it, September time, it was like right bang now we need to start working for the following year. But I did have a lot of uh, a lot of nice people around me, and there was one guy, um, a bloke called David Trim. Uh, I met him at Aston and he was working for a company and for, he went, from every company he went to, he used to find out where the marketing budget was. Really? Yeah, and then he really. used to say, right, Rebo. And he used to bring quite a few of the guys from these uh, companies he worked for, whatever, to, to the meetings abroad. And they used to have uh, meetings in the, we used to put all the beer on for them, some sandwiches on. I used to come to the meetings and enjoy it, but then they'd also help us out with the, with the racing. So it was a, like a back scratching thing and it worked well. And um, that's how we, Used to do a lot of our entertaining and and support for us. They used to support us with finance for the for the races. But we used to also like try and put on as much as we could for them when they were at the meeting, so that they enjoyed the day. They could use our team facilities for if they wanted to meet people, if they wanted to do out, or to organise all sorts of things for them to do. Also out there.
2: You know, I said to you earlier up in the GP paddock, kind of in in that sort of era, I, I knew one or two of the races and. Um, through drinking, not through flipping racing okay. back then, but um, yeah, the, the sidecar guys were, were, were known to be uh, hard racers, hard drinkers, and and okay. have, have a good time as well as you know wanting to win, of course. Um, and you look at the modern sidecar paddock; it is very professional now. Uh, you know they put on a good show. They're tidy, they're
1: clean. You know they they don't break down so much and, and put on a good. Yeah, it's been. It's been a hard, hard slog, really, I think, to, to get to get to the stage where it's at now, where the teams... I think what was happening was the finance that all the teams were getting was going into engine building. Everybody wanted to have a faster engine. Everybody wanted more power. It was just like this. You might as well have all gone and put thousands of pounds into a bin and burnt it because we reduced the engines to a more standard-based uh, engine when it went four-stroke. And straight away, that that allowed the teams to have more finance for maybe uh, presentation, for new leathers for getting the bike done. To, you stop spending money on the engines when really then you could spend a bit more on the suspension, the chassis and everything. And people realized then that it wasn't all about power and about engines. It was about making sure the bike was set up properly, making sure the chains and the tires were good. So that reflected in the presentation of the class in the you know, people had a more of a budget to be able to, to spend on, on, on promoting the class. And it has worked, yeah, for
2: sure. You know, it's always uh difficult and expensive to, to live that game, obviously. And it all costs a considerable amount of money. Uh towards the end of your career, did you change the four
1: stroke? Was you still in, yeah, you know, still was, still uh, in uh, again. Uh, a bit of a story and I've been in the right place at the right time, I'd, I I was I'd rode for a Swiss team, Team Boziger for three years. The guy, Marcus, uh, Marcus Boziger, used to supply the bike and everything, we used to just turn up and, and ride it. And that was a two-stroke bike. And then there was rumors about these four-strokes coming in and it was with a German uh, guy called Steinhausen who was taking over and financing the class. As long as he went in with uh, World Superbike so uh, Flamini's group and the deal was that this guy called Bert Steinhausen would pay for the sidecar class to go in with the world superbike class and um, the, but the only deal was it obviously had to go four stroke but it was allowed to go over two years and I'd gone on a, on a trip on a, on a solo bike to um, to Croatia while, while I was riding with Team Boziger and I'd gone on my solo bike with some mates and, and it broke down and i thought who oh, do i know in germany oh can go oh, can, who oh, can help me so it was steinhausen so there so uh, long story short i ended up in steinhausen's house but steinhausen was there they needed somebody to ride a sidecar four stroke it was just right time right place right time and i got the job uh, riding the first four stroke in the world championship uh, with, with team steinhausen for two years along with, Roll, uh, with Jörg Steinhauser, which was uh, a family member. So yeah, what was this thousand cc? That was oh, the twelve hundred uh, W Suzuki W P twelve hundred thing. It was like it was a missile, but it was such a heavy lump in the back. Yeah, it was like it was just like racing a race of the pendulum. You know, it was like sort of it gonna go. Oh yep, it's gone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, and was that? Uh, a much tougher job, obviously, to compete. On, not just
1: for you, but obviously for the for the guy in the yeah, passenger it, seat as well. Yeah, I think the, the, the passengers. It was it was a little bit more difficult for because the things had a lot more power and they could put the power down on on, on the road in the four-stroke. But then, going back to the uh, making the class a little bit more affordable, it was everybody realised they were spending maybe 10-20 grand on an engine when they really didn't have to do because a two thousand pound engine would have still done, got around half-quick, albeit half a second slower. And if everybody was on them, it didn't really matter. And that's, that's, that's what we did. We, 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 along with the FIM, we altered the class so that uh, it was more standard base for engines, so that you couldn't use special cranks, you couldn't use high compression pistons. All you could do was with the engine was um, balance it, blueprint it, and put a kit head gasket on, and then alter the valve time, and that was as much as you could, could do. You couldn't change anything else. So straight away that made it you could buy an engine for fifteen hundred quid out of a breaker bike, spend another fifteen hundred quid on it, and that's as maximum you can do and you can go world championship racing. And that paid dividends for the class because like I say, then they had money to go get themselves there, put tires on the bike and things like that. So for you, two strokes or four strokes? Uh, two-strokes. I mean, I, I did enjoy the four-strokes, I, I, I used to love the Super laps that they did in World Superbike, because you used to have you qualify and then the top ten, then you used to have a, a shootout, and you could just, for one lap, you could just give it as much buzz as you liked, and that was, that was good fun. Well, the two-strokes, were, were, in a way, were the best for me, because it was something that, you, you, you'd built the engines, you'd sorted things out, and it was just that era of watching your your Rainies, and your, your doings and things like that and then just being on a similar sort of engine similar bike uh, you know similar circuits and everything it was just a fantastic time to be to be racing and i loved it thanks for
2: listening please put your hands together steve webster thank, thank you very much thank you
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the More Bikes podcast. Remember to visit morebikes.co.uk for more news, reviews and bike tests. Thank you for listening.